Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews, chapter 6. Beginning in verse 6 is where we're going to pick up today. We are in the third warning passage, as you recall. It started back in chapter 5, verse 11. It runs all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, by the grace of God and a little bit of your patience, I think we'll get all the way through verse 8 today. And uh, the, what's the third warning? The third warning is if you're not growing in Christ, there are very big spiritual problems with very dire consequences. Okay? One of the reasons that they these professing Christians here had... Uh, we're not growing is because in verse 11, it tells us in chapter 5 of verse 11 that they had become dull of hearing. Notice they were not always dull of hearing. They became dull of hearing. That word means sluggish or lazy. How do you become dull of hearing? You quit applying the truths of God's word to your life. You quit saying, quit growing. You quit seeking new knowledge. You quit, you quit not just growing in knowledge, but then growing in the application of that knowledge onto your, into your life. In fact, he says in verse 12, if you had been doing that, you would by now be teachers. Not only would you be growing to perfection, not only would you be growing to completion, but you should be at the point where you can teach others now. And uh, we see that in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, where he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles. Remember, that's the ABCs of Right, the Christian faith, or actually the ABCs of Judaism, as we found out. Right, you have to go back to those things again, uh, and then take those. And by now, you should have been at a point where you're beyond those basics of Judaism and understand their fuller meaning of what it means in Jesus Christ. What it means in Christ. He's telling them they need to move beyond their basic understanding of Old Testament truth to a more mature understanding, a more complete understanding, a fuller understanding of what that means in the new covenant in Christ. They don't need milk anymore. By now, they should be digesting solid food. Matter of fact, verse 14 tells them not just that. That solid food we're talking about, that solid food of understanding not just the basics of of, of Judaism, the six things we're going to talk about next, not just those things, but what they mean in Christ. For example, for example, repentance in the Old Testament, Old Testament, uh, Old Testament Israelites, they understood, right, that they needed to repent from their sin, right? That was the whole point of the sacrifice, the offerings, and so on. They understood they needed to do that. But they didn't understand the complete and final sacrifice in Christ, right? That had not yet been revealed. But the author of Hebrews is saying, by now you should have understood that. If you're still clinging to those things which were a mere shadow of the things to come in Christ, you're still a baby. Matter of fact, he calls them that. You're babies. You're spiritual babies. You, you, you can't handle the solid food yet because you're still stuck on the bottle, if you will, of these little basic Old Testament Judaism truths. So verse 14, he says again, those solid food is for whom? It's for the mature. It's for those who have been applying those truths to their life. Those who are seeking a deeper understanding. Who, because of patience, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They're applying these things to their lives. Which brought us to chapter 6, verse 1. He said, uh, therefore, leave that elementary teaching about the Christ, about the anointed one, about the Messiah, 
and let us press on to maturity, right? And what are the two key words here? Leave, right? Leave that basic understanding and then press on to maturity. Leave those things behind. Those were just, those were a shadow. Those were pointing you towards Christ. Now you need to leave those behind and take on the fuller understanding, bringing your faith into maturity in Christ. So he's saying, listen, they, uh, he says here, uh, literally the Greek translation is this, leaving the beginning teaching of the Messiah in the old covenant, press on the maturity or the perfection or the completion in Christ. What are those elementary teachings? Well, we looked at those before, right? The author here lists six of them, and we see that in verses one through three. Each of these six are couplets, meaning three sets of twos, right? Three sets of twos. What are they? The first one we saw in our text in chapter six, verses one through three. The first was repentance from dead works and faith in God. Repentance and faith, right? Repentance from dead works, faith in God. What's the second one? Instructions about washings, all the ceremonial washings, and then what? Laying on of hands, right? When did they do the laying on of hands? Well, primarily in the Old Testament would have been when they, you know, uh, on the Day of Atonement, would have placed their hands on the sacrificial lamb, where the sins of Israel, right, were placed on the sacrificial lamb. Third couplet in the elementary teaching was the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Those were the basics. If someone was to become a proselyte into Judaism, they were taught those six things. Those six things were the bedrock, the foundation of what it meant to be in Judaism. And so before they would have been baptized, because proselytes were baptized and accepted in the Jewish church 2,000 years ago, they would have had to understand these things from the Old Testament. This is a catechism, if you will, for Old Testament Jewish believers. But each item here, although it's from a Jewish context, does take on a deeper, fuller meaning in Christ, right? We spend a lot of time unpacking what those things mean. This is what it meant in the Old Testament. Here's the fuller, more complete, more mature understanding in Christ. Every single one of these uh, we, we spend time on. That brings us to verse 3 of chapter 6. And the author says, and this we will do. We will come to completion. We will do that if what? If God permits. If God permits. And this verse is very similar to in context to the warning that God issued back in chapter 3, verse 11. Remember that? To the wilderness wanderings when he said, uh, chapter 3, verse 11, um, and two, here's three, three eleven. He said, and I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. They will not enter my rest. Notice then that, that the beginning of verse four in chapter six, when you flip back there, then it says this, for in the case, those two things are connected grammatically. If God permits for in the case, he's still talking about the same people here. For in the case, the sense of the verse is this. We will press on to maturity, beloved. We will press on to maturity. We will press on to completion if God permits. For we know about those in the wilderness generation whom God did not permit to press on and enter the promised land. 
these words, if God permits, then becomes the fulcrum, as you've heard me say a couple times now, the fulcrum to which this warning, this third warning, comes into play. Verse 4 then, let's look at that again. Remind, we looked at this in depth last week. For in the case of those who, who was, who's the subject here? Well, grammatically, our subject is still the same. It's still those. It's still those professing Christians that he's been talking about. The author is still talking to the same group of individuals throughout this epistle. These are professing Christians, which you've demonstrated through each chapter. And there are five verbs here. If you have any Greek scholars out here, they're actually aorist passive participles. But here they are, verses 4 through 6, enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, they've been made partakers, they've tasted the word, and then have fallen away. That's who they are. They're professing Christians who have had these things done to them. Well, okay, let's look at the first one. Review again. That first one, enlightened, means illuminated. Illuminated. In my Bible, enlightened is crossed out. Illuminated is written right above it. Okay? The, it is illuminated or become known. Illumination is not the same as regeneration. Just because the gospel message has presented and you understand it does not mean that you're saved. Being illuminated by the gospel does not mean that you're regenerated. It just means that the gospel has been brought into light into your life. The next one, tasted of the heavenly gift. Remember that tasted, mean, that word tasted means to experience the heavenly gift. Then we looked at each word. Heavenly, that word is a literal heaven. Gift, usually in the New Testament, refers to either Christ or salvation. So this word means to experience. So not only have these professing Christians been illuminated by the gospel, they've also experienced the heavenly gift, okay? Based again about how the writer uses the word heavenly throughout the book of Hebrews, this is a reference to literal heaven. And again, the word gift here, usually a reference to Christ or salvation. Can you experience the blessings of Christ or salvation and yet not be saved? Can you experience, can you taste that? Can you, can you have a portion of that and yet not be saved? The answer is yes, unfortunately, you can. In the same way we can experience God's goodness in our lives and not be saved. We can experience a lot of God's grace in our lives, a lot of God's ministry in our lives by those who are around us. If you're in a family that's of all saved individuals, guess what? That, the family, the blessings that that family is receiving, you're going to partake in some of those blessings because you are part of the family that God is blessing. And uh, same thing. You can do that and yet not be saved. You can be part of a family of saved individuals receiving the blessings of God. Remember, the rain, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? I mean, the same rain falls on both. And just if you're part of a family or connected to a family that is true believers, you're going to receive some of those blessings, even though you may not be saved. Notice the next one then, made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're moving quickly, but that's because we've covered all of this in depth. Made partakers of the Holy Spirit. The essence of this phrase means sharing or partners, or companions. You're partners of the Holy Spirit, companions of the Holy Spirit. You share in some experience with the Holy Spirit. 
But having made partakers of the Holy Spirit does not necessarily mean that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Nor does it mean that you're regenerated. Once again, this participle indicates you've had some sort of experience with the Holy Spirit. But let's not forget, these professing believers have been present as the Holy Spirit has been active in and through the lives of their entire community. They've seen people come to faith. They've seen their lives transformed. They've seen changes, real changes, where true believers are bearing fruit, even if they're not bearing any themselves. They're seeing it all around them. And so they are experiencing God's Holy Spirit working in and through other people's lives in their community. And yet, they're tempted to fall away. They're tempted to apostatize, which means literally fall away. And indeed, some already have. Verse 5 then says, And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Here again is our word taste. It means to experience. They've experienced the ministry of the word of God. That word, usually in the New Testament, is logos, but here it's rhema, which means Literal book, writing, literal writings. So in this case, this community church, this little church here, has experienced the little the literal writings of the apostles. They're reading those letters. Perhaps the apostles themselves had shared with them and came and shared their experience of what God had done in their life and other churches around. They had partaken in all of that. They had shared in all of that very message of God brought to them by the letters of the apostles, taught to them through preaching and teaching, and yet they're still tempted to fall away. There's more to come. The powers of the age to come. In a Jewish mind, there are only two ages. There's the age you're in now and the age to come. That's how they would always describe it. There's this age, there's the age to come. When they talk about the age to come, they're thinking millennial kingdom. The time when the Messiah returns, right, to reign and to rule over the earth. That's in their mind. Those are the only two ages. So uh, the powers in the age come, the millennial kingdom. In fact, remember chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we saw that before, right? It said in our second warning, for this reason, I'm sorry, first warning, we must pay much closer attention to what they have heard so that we do not drift away from it or fall away from it. That's chapter 2, verse 1. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, verse 3 of chapter 2, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And then notice verse 4, God also testifying them with them both by signs and wonders, right, and miracles. That word miracles is the word dunamis, which means power. Power. That's the same word we have in chapter 6, verse 5, same exact word. So these professing believers had experienced these powers, these signs, these wonders, these miracles. They had seen God's hand at work all around them. And now are falling away. I say, you know, I'm going to go back to Judaism. I see what Christ has done. I see the way he's moving. 
I know these people. They have been in my community my entire life. I've seen the transformation in their lives. I've seen the fruit that they're bearing through the hand of God in their lives. That they're being transformed. They're, what they were, the old creature has become new, right? They're a new man. They're a new person in Christ. I see that all around me. I'm sharing in those gifts. I'm sharing in those blessings. I see all of that. I'm reaping the benefits of that. And yet many are falling away. They had been illuminated by the gospel. They'd experienced the blessings of Christ and salvation at some aspect. They were made sharers of the experience of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the literal writings of God through preaching and teaching. They'd seen the power of God through his confirming testimony of his signs, wonders, and miracles. And yet no regeneration, no salvation. And now those people are falling away and wanting to go back to Judaism. They saw all of that. They were under the word every week. They were surrounded by people who were truly saved. Perhaps other people in their family were saved. They'd seen the transformation in their lives. They'd seen and tasted all of that and then said, no thanks. No thanks. I'm going to stick to the way I want to live my life. I'm going to go back to what's comfortable for me. I don't like the more stringent commandments in the New Testament, the more fuller understanding, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law and what was intended. I liked it better when adultery meant literal adultery, not what Jesus said, where if I just look at her with lust in my eyes, that's adultery. That's harder. I don't want to live that way. It's easier for me to go back here. Can't I just sacrifice an animal and call it a day? Can't I just go back to that? No, thank you. I reject all of that. And let us not forget this epistle is written to show that Christ and the new covenant are better. Right? What's the theme of Hebrews? Christ is better. Christ is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. He's better than it all. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you've tasted that. You've experienced that. You've seen God. You've seen God's fulfillment of what he said would happen in and through Christ. And those who have surrendered their life in faith to him, you've been a part of all of that. And now you're going to walk away. Now you're going to go back and say, no thanks. No thanks, God. Which is why the author of Hebrew keeps coming back to the example of those in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings, isn't it? He keeps showing them an example of, this can happen. This can happen. And he's speaking to a Jewish audience, right? He's speaking to, these are former, these are Jews who are, part of Judaism. He's speaking to that crowd and now have made a profession of faith. Some have truly surrendered their life. Others have just made a profession. And he keeps going back to this wilderness wanderings and he keeps saying, listen, they were enlightened. They were illuminated. They were guided by a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They ate the manna. They tasted the manna. 
that God provided as a heavenly gift for them in the midst of the desert. The word of God came through Moses, very finger of God, writing it on the tablets that Moses brought down. He communicated what God had said. And they saw the miracles in the hand of God when he parted the Red Sea, when he destroyed the Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. They saw that. And then what happened? Remember? The first little trial, the first little tribulation. What did they do? Oh, Moses, you bring us out here to die? Is that what your whole point of this whole thing was? You brought us all out here to just die in the desert? Can't we go back to being slaves where we just had a, a pot of stew at least? The next few verses in this warning passage speak directly to those that God had said, you shall not enter my promised land. These were people that said they believed in God, and then when the trial hit, they rejected God. They fell away. God said, you shall not enter the promised land. These next few verses are a warning passage speaking directly to you, if you're a professing believer here today, or somebody in your family that you know has made a profession of Christ, but there is absolutely zero fruit in their life. This is for this is who this passage is speaking to. They've willfully rejected all the Lord has given as an opportunity to experience, and then they said, No thanks. I'm going back. I like it over here better. The author of Hebrews is saying there are consequences for a decision like that. And they are deadly. And they are eternal. And so he's going to give them a warning. Let's look at that now in verse 6. Verse 6. He says to him, And then have fallen away. All of that, right? The illuminated, the tasted, the experience, right? And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This is the last verb of our five. There it is, fallen away. It means, carries with it this idea of forsaking or not following through with a commitment, or to apostatize, or to apostasy, which means to fall away. Who is it again that has fallen away? Those who were enlightened, those who had tasted, right? Those who had shared. Then they fell away. These are the professing Christians. We've been talking about this entire epistle. These are not truly saved individuals. Instead, they've come right up to the point of surrendering their life to Christ. Right up to the edge. But now they're falling away. And as I told you last week, there are none of the usual terms that would indicate salvation. We don't see the words anywhere in here that we see throughout the New Testament. Words like regeneration or justification or redeemed or regenerated. We don't even see born again. We don't see where they're indwelt by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit or even baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit. Why? Because they're not truly saved. They have shared in the experience of those who are truly saved. 
They've also repented of their sins when they made their profession. They've seen the transforming power of God at work, producing the righteous fruit in the heart of true believers in their community. I believe they've even experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in their own life to some degree when they were convicted of their sin, right? What is John 16, 8, right? He said, uh, let's talk about the Holy Spirit, right? When he returns, right, he will convict who? He will convict the world of sin. I think they, it says in our text, they repented. But then came the trials, then the persecution, and slowly but surely they quit applying this knowledge and the truths of God's word to their life, and they became lazy and sluggish, and soon they're falling away. In fact, they've fallen away so far, they're falling all the way back to where they were before they were saved. They've fallen all the way back to that which was just a shadow or a picture of all that they had been illuminated with and shared and experienced and now rejected completely and fully to return back to the bondage of the law. Is not this what happened to the example provided in, in the warning passage, in each warning passage? Look at chapter 3 again, verse 11. God says, I swore in my wrath. Remember, these are the ones who mumbled, who grumbled, who rejected, right? Who cried out to God. We looked at Psalm 95 and saw the reference. We looked back at Exodus. We looked at all the passages. Is that not them? Verse 12, take care, he says, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, what? An evil, unbelieving heart that falls away. There's our word, apostasy that falls away from the living God. For these, what, what happened here? What, what happened when they fell away? Look at verses 18 and 19. And to whom did he swear that they shall not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Well, who are those that are disobedient? Verse 19, we see that they are not able to enter the rest, able to enter because of what? Unbelief. You know, the gospel is not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's a command. Repent is a command. It's an imperative. Repent. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are commands. They're not recommendations. Hey, if you get around to it, if you don't find something better, if you want to wait until it's a more convenient time in your life, none of that is in the word of God. Those are things that we add. Those are things that we put into the Word of God because we want to keep the things that we want to keep in our lives, whether they're pleasing to God or not. For those professing Christians, the Bible tells us it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The word impossible means not possible. How do you like that? Very scholarly, huh? Not possible. Some translations try to get around this very tough text by using words like difficult, but the word difficult is not in the text. And the word impossible does not mean difficult. It means impossible. What is it impossible for them to do? The text tells us, it's very plain here, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. As I stated earlier, this indicates that at one time they had repented they had recognized they were sinners. They had recognized their need for a Savior. They had even made a profession of faith. But now, they're tempted to fall away. 
And if they do, if those that have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared an experience of the Holy Spirit, tasted the word of God, and then fall away, the Bible tells us it is not just difficult to renew them, it is impossible. That's sobering when you read that, isn't it? That's sobering to me. Because that word renew means to restore back to the original condition. What was their original condition? The condition that brought about their repentance in the first place. The enlightened experience, heavenly gift, sharing in the experience of the Holy Spirit, tasting the word of God. All of that brought about a repentance. But there's one thing missing here in their repentance, wasn't there? Do you remember what it is? Remember when I told you that repentance and faith are the same side, right? There are two different sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith. I turn away. Repentance means a complete 180. I turn away from my sin. I turn away from my old life. I don't just turn away from it. I turn away from my sin and I turn to Christ in faith. That's what that means. You can't just do this part and not turn in faith over here and think that you're saved. Repentance without faith does not lead to salvation. If I turn away from my sin, but not, but do not out of my faith in the one who can take away my sin, past, present, and future, and who can wash me white as snow, then I'm turning away from my sin, but I'm trusting in something else then to save me. There is no other means of salvation than Jesus Christ. There is no other Beloved, nothing else can take away your sin problem other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's it. There's not an alternative. I don't care what the world tells you. The Word of God tells us that's it. There is no other name by which men can be saved. None other. No other. The Bible tells us here that if you have experienced God's gracious offer of salvation, tasted the heavenly gift of Christ, tasted the word of God in your life, shared in the blessings from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then in full revelation of God and his word and his son, still harden your heart in unbelief, the text tells us it is impossible to renew you again to repentance. Why? Because in essence, you are re-crucifying Christ all over again. Interestingly, here the verb tense changes from, remember I told you it was eris, something that happened in the past, but still has continuing results today, right? When Jesus said, it is finished, it meant it was finished then, and it's finished now, right? That's the eris sense. But guess what? Right here in this verse, it switches to the present tense. The author of Hebrews is saying, when in full revelation you harden your heart in an unbelief and reject Christ, you are re-crucifying him again right now. Right now. You're putting him to open shame right now every time you do that. And that word shame, incidentally, is the same word used to describe Joseph when he said he had no desire to bring shame upon Mary. That's what that word means. Shame, open shame. You cannot just re-crucify Jesus again and again and put him to open shame and disgrace 
and then act like you really didn't mean it when you stand before the Lord. None of us get to do that. None of us. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. On what basis will you stand before the Lord and claim your righteous standing when you have willfully and deliberately hardened your heart in unbelief towards the only one who, by which you can be saved? What do you think will be what you're going to say to the Lord when you've rejected the only means of salvation? The one that he provided. His son. What do you think that you're going to say? On what will your sins be atoned for if not the shed blood of Jesus Christ? On what grounds will you be justified and declared not guilty? if you reject the one who's both just and the justifier, what is the means? Jesus told us he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. When you willfully reject Christ through unbelief, you eliminate your only means by which men can be saved. Just like those who wandered in the wilderness, they saw God's hand at work. They tasted the good word of God from Moses. They shared in the blessings of God through his spirit. They saw his divine hand at work through mighty miracles and still hardened their hearts in unbelief. What did God say to them? Not you might not enter my rest, not you could not enter my rest, but what? You shall not enter my rest. We're not talking about a, a short case of backsliding. This is a complete denial of the faith. With that terrible picture of crucifying the Son of God all over again. To reject the message of the cross, the authority of the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, is to willfully reject God and by implication embrace those who crucified our Lord. In essence, you are saying they were right. He was a phony. It was a sham. No sensible person plays with fire like that. When you do that, you put Christ to open shame, just like they did 2,000 years ago, hanging him on the cross. You are denying that he that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In him. In him. Beloved, God will indeed forgive those who are truly repenting. If you have a repentant heart, if you've been a professing Christian, but you've not willfully said, that's it, I'm walking away, I'm not going to do that. If you still have a heart that is seeking to know and to, uh, and to surrender your life to God, to know him as your personal Savior, God will truly repent. Time and time again, we've seen those who've committed horrendous sins. How about the murder and adultery from David? How much, how much do you think Peter saw before he denied him three times? No one is beyond the grace of God. If they are truly surrendering their life to Christ, 
But we've also seen that many that have been illuminated by the gospel, they've shared in Christ, they've even repented, they've seen God's hand at work in their lives and the lives of others, then they've fallen away. They have willfully chosen to fall away from God and salvation through his Son. And for that person, there is no means of salvation left as they have chosen to disregard the only means of salvation. It is not possible because they've hardened their heart and rejected Christ willfully and intentionally. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Stay with me. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 28. Romans 1. We're all familiar with Romans chapter 1, where it's God's wrath on the unrighteous, right? They deny that which is already in their heart, that which is evident to them. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to do what? To acknowledge God when? Any longer. At one point they did. Now they've chosen not to do that. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrusting, unloving, unmerciful. Verse 32. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they give a hearty approval to those who do it. People became so completely sinful that God gives them up to their depraved mind. Hebrews 6, 6 presents a strong warning to willful sinners, professing Christians that they cannot expect restoration to God after they adamantly reject his mercy and grace. Now, just to make sure that we've understood this properly, he gives us a quick little example here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. I know you didn't think we'd get there, but we're going to sneak it in here. Look at that. Verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is what? worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned at first the land benefits from the generous supply of rain and produces valuable crops and so it shares in God's blessing but then it changes and instead produces thorns and thistles when you hear the word thorns and thistles what do you think of you think of Genesis chapter 3 right right after the fall as part of the curse That land that God was graciously blessing, that God had crafted and made specifically for his crowding creation, turned to thorns and thistles when? When they rejected God. It was no longer worth cultivating. A risk being written off, eventually burned. The parallel is obvious to these professing Christians. All those who have had the gospel illuminated to them, who've experienced the word of God, tasted repentance in Christ's wonderful offer of salvation, shared in the work of the Holy Spirit, in their own lives and the lives of others, seen God's hand 
in the transformation of sinners to the redeemed are the same ones who had the rain falling upon them as well. Those that respond in obedience and trust Jesus as their Lord for the forgiveness of their sins, trusting in his finished work on the cross, trusting in him and him alone for eternal life, they receive the blessings of eternal life forever in the presence of God. But if after receiving God's gracious gift, they then harden their hearts and reject the Lord Jesus willfully, intentionally, in a complete disobedience, bearing thorns and thistles instead of the fruit of repentance, for them they face the judgment of God eternally. Eternally. They face the eternal fire of God's judgment for all those who willfully reject the gospel and harden their hearts in unbelief. Isn't that what the parable of the soil said yet again? Turn to Matthew chapter 13 quickly. Just remind ourselves here. Matthew 13. Remember when Jesus is uh, in verse uh, 18, Matthew 13, verse 18. He's explaining the the, uh, parable of the soils, right? Parable of the sower. Here then the parable of the sower, verse 18, chapter 13 of the gospel of Matthew When anyone hears the word of kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. Then here is our group here, verse 20. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is a man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he does what? Falls away. There's our word yet again. He apostatizes. But can that really happen? Are there any examples that you can say, Pastor, in the New Testament where someone had all the trappings of salvation but was not truly saved? How about Acts chapter 8? Let's go there quickly. And Judas is another great one, yes. Let's just look at this one here today. Acts chapter 8. Remember, we had Simon Magus. Here he is. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Verse 12, But, in contrast to that, when they believed Philip's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even, verse 13, even Simon himself did what? Believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles, that's our word dunamis again, great power, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was being bestowed through the laying on of hands, he offered them money. Giving them, right? Give, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish 
with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for what? Your heart is not right before God. Therefore, do what? Repent. Repent of this wickedness of yours. And pray the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Notice that, if possible. If your heart is not so hardened in unbelief. Verse 23, for I see that you are the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of sin, iniquity. But Simon answered, said, what? Pray for me, yourself. I'm not going to do that. Isn't there an easier way? Clearly, the, the text indicates that Simon is not saved. Remember 1 Timothy 1.19, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Remember what Paul said about them? They traveled with him. They worked with him. And then finally he says, I have to turn them over to Satan. They're blaspheming against God. They probably showed all the markings. Do you think Paul would have kept them around if they had not shown and demonstrated that they were believers? No, I don't think so for a minute. But yet, that's what happened. Beloved, what if that is you today? What if you have all the external trappings of a true believer, but you know in your heart you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ? What if you're here today? What if you were like me? What if you were sitting in that pew at the age of 40 thinking you were saved because I knew about Christ? But I didn't know Christ. Thinking I was secure, thinking I was safe, thinking I was going to get into heaven. I know what it's like to slowly but surely harden your heart towards Jesus, leaning on myself or my intellect or my good works or my self-righteousness to base my salvation. I know what that's like. But let me tell you this, but God is rich in mercy, kept mercifully extending the gospel to me bringing his wonderful message again and again to me. And I thank God that he did. For I could have easily been like those in the wilderness, or like Simon Magus, or like Alexander and Hymenaeus. And if not for the grace of God, I would have heard those words in Matthew seven twenty three: Depart from me. I never knew you. Oh yeah, he knew about me. But he didn't know me as a son. Beloved, don't let that happen to you. Don't harden your hearts against the Lord in unbelief. Don't let the trials and the suffering and the persecution drive you away from the truth that you've heard, you've tasted, you've shared, you've experienced. Because if you do, you could get to the point where you harden your heart in unbelief to the point that it's impossible to renew you to repentance because you will have eliminated the only means of salvation in your life. You will have rejected the only means by which you can be saved. You will have rejected the living truth And the only means of salvation in Jesus Christ. And you never want to hear the words like those in the wilderness. You shall not enter my rest or depart from me. I never knew you. You never want to hear those words. But those are indeed the words you will hear if you've not truly surrendered your life to Christ. If God in his love has illuminated you with his gospel... If you've experienced Christ, repented, made a profession of faith, if you've experienced the teaching of his word, shared in his transforming power the Holy Spirit, seen God's transforming power in the lives of true believers all around you, and then you fall away, never bearing any fruit of true salvation in your life, this passage is a very sober warning to you. 
Because if you walk away from your only means of salvation, Jesus Christ, by what means left is there for you to be saved? The answer is, it's impossible. Because you're re-crucifying the Savior and putting him to open shame again. And for that, there are dire consequences. Eternal consequences. Don't let that be you. If you're here today and you are truly repentant and you want to truly surrender your life to Christ, it's not too late. It's not too late. I don't know where that point is in your life when you'll harden your hearts to the point where you're in total unbelief and it's impossible for you to be renewed. I don't know where that spot is. And guess what? You don't either. Because you got people in your life, don't you? You're thinking about right now, as I am, who are unsaved, and you don't want that to be them any more than you want that to be you. And I don't know where that spot is in their life, and you don't either. So what's the solution? Keep sharing the gospel. Keep praying for them. Look for every opportunity to live your life in a way that's glorifying to Christ, and pray that their hearts are not hardened in unbelief, in willful rejection of God. Pray that God will shatter the hardness of their heart. Draw them to themselves. And that they won't care what other people will say. They won't think about all of that. They'll suffer the trials and persecution. And they'll surrender their life to Christ. And live eternally in his presence forever and ever. Amen. Pray that. If you're here today, you've never done that. You're not absolutely sure of your salvation. I pray that you wouldn't step out that door today without making sure. Don't keep presuming upon God's grace. And if you're here today and you are truly saved and you have people in your life that you deeply care about that are not saved, keep praying. Keep sharing. Love them enough. Don't give up on them. Love them enough to keep loving them in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, these messages are hard. They're tough. But Lord, you command us to walk through them all, every single one of them. And that's hard, Lord, because we don't don't want to have to look at ourselves like that. And Lord, we don't want to think about people that we love so dearly in those terms either. But you put it in there, Lord, as a warning to us to not let that happen. To be diligent. To be faithful witnesses. To preach to every living creature. Father, there may be one in our midst today who's going through the motions. They profess to be a Christian, but they've never really truly surrendered. They're not bearing any fruit in their life whatsoever. They're living very worldly lives. I don't see any evidence of your grace in their lives. Father, if they're here today and they know that's them in the same way I knew that was me, Lord, those many years ago, I pray today would be the day they'd surrender their life to you. Father, thank you for your gracious gift of salvation. Thank you for allowing us, this clay pots that we are, to be used as a vessel for this wonderful truth. May we not only preach it, but may we live it in a way that brings you honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.